Thank you, Brother Randy, and to Brother Mark and Brother Larry and uh, all of our song leaders who participate and, and help us uh, in our song service every Sunday. We appreciate your willingness and your efforts in doing so. Well, this morning, I'd like to take a look at the first five verses of Ephesians chapter 2. First five verses, Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. For in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. I kind of like these first five verses to basic Bible doctrine in the Bible. He says in verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Now, in the past, those he's writing to here were in a state of death. But something happened, something changed, something took care of that. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now the he's God. We notice here the expression quickened. It means to make alive. Now a lot of the Lord's people just don't understand that when Adam transgressed God's law, death came upon all humanity. When Adam transgressed God's law, he just didn't put man in the hospital. He didn't just stump his toe and injure himself or get violently sick. He died, just like the Lord said he would. The Lord told Adam, you need of every tree in the Garden of Eden except one. That's a tree of good, uh, knowledge of good and evil. And in the day thou eatest of, thou shalt surely die. Now, death means separation. And when Adam transgressed God's law, that day a death took place. Adam is the head of all humanity, representing all of humanity. He represented you, he represented me. In that transgression, he was our representative. And Romans 5, 12 tells us, Wherefore but one man sinned in the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Now there's only one life giver, and that's God. As he addresses the church here at Ephesus, he says, And you hath he quickened which were dead in trespasses and in sin. That was their former condition, a condition of death. Not illness, not sickness, not injury, but of death. And God's the only one that can conquer death. Now the word quickened here, again, literally means to make alive. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, in verse 11, Paul said, For if the Spirit of him that raised up Christ from the dead dwell in you, then he that raised up Christ from the dead shall quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. He's talking about the resurrection. He's saying the Spirit of God that dwells in you is the same Spirit that quickened the Lord Jesus Christ to raise him from the dead. And that's exactly what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ at the end of time, the last day, 
you're going to find that you're going to be quickened. What's going to be quickened? Your mortal bodies are going to be quickened. And your body that's been lying in the grave, forever how long it might have been, will hear the voice of the Son of God and shall come out of the grave to be reunited with the soul and spirit to be the Lord in glory. The word quicken is a very important word. We find in Hebrews 4 and 12 where Paul says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharpening a two-edged sword, piercing even to the sunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. Now we need to understand, is this the written word? Is this the gospel word, preached word, or is this the living word? Well, if you pay attention to the language, you'll understand it's the living word. The Bible has never given life to anybody. The contents of the scriptures will nourish that which has life. In other words, it nourishes God's children who are alive in Christ. It encourages them. It comforts them. It enables them to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. But the written word of God, the scriptures, as valuable as they are, have never given eternal life to anyone. As important as the gospel is, and it's extremely important, far more important than the average person ever thinks, as important as the gospel is, and the need of it to be preached, the gospel has never been instrumental in giving eternal life to anyone. The gospel is a proclamation. The gospel is a declaration. The gospel is a message to those who are alive to encourage them, to comfort them, to give them peace and consolation, to build them up in the most holy faith. But let's notice Hebrews 4.12 once again. For the word of God is quick. The word quick means to give life. It's quick and it's powerful and it's sharpening any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing of soul and spirit. Now only Jesus Christ can divide soul and spirit. The written word tells us we have a soul. The written word tells us we have a spirit. The written word makes it plain as Mary did, which is said, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit rejoiceth in Christ Jesus. And that's about as far as we can go with it. Know that we have a soul. Know we have a spirit. When people start trying to uh, figure out how to divide that, we just always come back to the same conclusion. We're just not, not able to do it. But there's one who can. The living word. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharpening a two-edged sword, piercing even to the sunder of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Now that's, get, that's getting pretty, pretty good. And joint and marrow now. And as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. But the next verse, listen. In whom there is not anything hid from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things are naked and open unto him with whom we have to do. Him <laughs> has reference to a person. Him has reference to the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in 1 John 5, 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. He that is quick is the one who does the job of quickening. Now the word quicken in the Old Testament is found in the Psalms. Doesn't mean to give life, it means to revive. And we find in the 119th Psalm where David speaks about this a number of times. He says, Lord, quicken me according to thy loving kindness. Quicken me according to thy compassion. And in one of the verses he says, quicken me according to thy word. Revive me, in other words. That's what the word means there. It means to revive. And that's what I trust we all look forward to each Sunday we come here on Sunday morning is to have a revival service, right? 
to be revived. This world has a tendency of getting you down. And we need to be lifted up. And it's not to lift you up any greater than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A proclamation of his word, expounding of his word from his written word under the direction of the God's spirit uh, will encourage you and lift your soul and lift your spirits like nothing else possibly can. There's no substitute for it. Trust me, there is no substitute for it. So he says, in you hath he quickened. Now, in 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul tells Timothy, he gives him a charge. He, he says, I charge thee before God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Now, why he didn't say the living and the dead? He said the quick and the dead. The word quick means to live. When the Lord comes, he's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to judge those who are living naturally and those who have died. He's going to also judge those who have been made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ by the quickening power of God and also those who are dead in trespasses and in sins. See, he's the judge of all the earth. And he will judge the quick and the dead. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins who in time past walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He said, you had a past. And in times past, you walked according to the course of this world. Now sometimes Paul, in writing to the Ephesians here, it's interesting to me, we use the word you, sometimes he used the word us, and sometimes the word we, and they're used almost equally. I think the word we is used like 16 times, the word us 19, the word you 18, something like that. So Paul used that word we quite often in the word us in the scripture. You know, not a few weeks ago I made mention, I think, in one of the messages, how much I like the us's of the Bible. <laughs> now I don't guess there's any such word as us's, but when you're preaching you're getting to make up words sometimes. Uh, but did you know how the word Jesus is spelled, don't you? J-E-S. U.S.? That's us, isn't it? Uh, us is in Jesus. That's why I like the us is of the Bible. So you hath he quickened who were dead in trespassing, who in time past you walked according to the course of this world. Now, the word walk in the Bible sometimes is used simply as, as a means of physical movement. Just like I walked into the church this morning. And sometimes it has a uh, reference to a way of life. And I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, I noticed in Matthew chapter 4, where the Lord Jesus Christ goes to the Sea of Galilee to call James and John and Peter and Andrew to discipleship and to being apostles. And the Bible says, Jesus walked by the sea. And then in chapter 14, there's a second storm the disciples are in, in the ship. And this one, Jesus is not in the ship with them. He had been on a mountain praying for them. But he comes down from the mountain. The Bible says he walked on the sea. He walked by the sea. He walked on the sea. Now, I've walked by the sea many times. It's an enjoyable experience to me to just walk on the sand by the sea and watch that great, vast body of water as the waves come rolling in, just displaying how great and how powerful God is. You just cannot beat what God has created to just teach you by observation that there's a creator God. But I've never walked on the sea, literally. But I believe I have walked on the sea figuratively 
I believe from time to time in my life, God's enabled me to walk on the sea of my troubles, on the sea of my trials and my tribulations, when without his help, I would sink just like Peter did. Remember, Peter walked on the sea for a while. He got out of that ship and walked to the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, he walked on the sea until he took his eyes off the Savior. And when you take your eyes off the Savior, same thing's going to happen every single time. You're going to sink. You're going to sink beneath the problems of this world. But as long as your eyes are on the Savior, he'll enable you to walk on the sea of your trials and your tribulations and your troubles here in life. But generally speaking, when the Bible uses that word walk, it's talking about a way of life. And Paul used that a number of times here in the Ephesian letter. Just a few verses later, we look in verse 10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, before which he hath ordained that we should walk in them. Here's a way of life that God wants his children to live. He wants us to walk in the good works that he's outlined for us in the word of God, in the scripture. It's a way of life. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. That word vocation means a, the station of life. Means your life, that you're living here. You're to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you call. God has called you to walk different than the people of the world walk. We're, we're to be different. We're to withdraw ourselves from the world. You see, we're in the world, not of the world. See, the Word of God will teach us who are in the world how to live not of the world. <laughs> Very important. We're all in the world, but we don't need to be of the world. And God's Word will help us teach us how to be in the world, but not live of the world, not be of the world. Say so a little bit more about that maybe a little bit later. But here we walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we're called. And then in chapter 5, in verse 1, he says, Be ye followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us, a sacrifice unto God as a sweet-smelling sever. As Christ himself gave himself for us, an offering sacrifice to the Father, which was a sweet-smelling sever in the nostrils of God, he said, walk in love as dear children. As children of God, as dear children, we're to walk in love. That's a sign of discipleship. John 13, 35, the Lord Jesus Christ said, but this shall all men know you're my disciples if you have love one to another. That's a sign of your discipleship. So we're to walk in love. We're to walk uh, as the light of the world. John, uh, Ephesians 5, 8. Well, you were sometimes darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk ye therefore as children of light. Verse 14 tells us to walk circumspectly, redeeming the time. Circumspectly, that means we're to walk with alertness. We're to walk with soberness. We're to, we're to, watch, we're to walk with our eyes open, you might say. You know, uh, circumference, the word circumference, Circumference means the distance around a certain thing, right? You have circumference, you have uh, circumcision, you have circumspect. As we walk around in this world here, we're to walk circumspectly. So we're to walk in light, we're to walk in love, we're to walk in the good works, we're to walk where the vocation, we're to walk circumspectly here in this world. And then there's a walk not in chapter 4, verse 17, when the apostle says, and walk not as other Gentiles who are walking in the vanity of their mind. Here's how we're not to walk. We're not to walk in the vanity of our mind. In other words, being lifted with pride. One man asked another man, he said, I want you to pray for me that I can be humble and remain humble. 
And the man replied by saying, well, what do you have to be proud of? If you just think about that, well, what have you got to be proud of? You won't have no trouble being humble. <laughs> what do I have to be proud of? <laughs> I could think of a few things over the years I thought I had to be proud of, and I soon found out I didn't. So what do you have to be proud of? When you think of it that way, you don't have to worry about people praying for you. You'll be humble, you see. So, and you have the quickened who were dead in trespass and sin. That's what you were in times past. Now, Paul wrote about his time past more on one occasion, but in Galatians 1.13, he says, For you know my conversation in times past. The word conversation does not mean speech. It means your overall conduct. It includes speech, but it's your overall conduct. He said, You know about my conversation in times past among the Jews in the Jews' religion, how I persecuted the church of God. That was his past. But he had a present that he wrote about in Galatians 2, 20 and 21. He says, For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. When he says, I am crucified with Christ, obviously Paul was not crucified. Uh, two thieves were crucified with Christ, but not Paul. But in one sense, Paul was crucified with Christ, and you were crucified with Christ, and I was crucified with Christ from the standpoint of his representation. We were represented in Jesus Christ when he was crucified on the cross. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life I now live. I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's great motivation, isn't it? Isn't that great motivation when you think about Christ loved me and Christ gave himself for me? Why would he love me? By nature, I'm, I'm, I'm unlovable. And you're unlovable by nature, so why would you? It's, it's a miracle of grace. That's, that's what it is. It's nothing short of a miracle of grace, you see. So you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sin. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And you'll read here in the opening verses, about verses 7, 8, and 9, he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there's ten sins listed here. And he says, Those who live this kind of life or are involved in these kind of sins, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying if you've ever committed one of these sins that you won't go to heaven. But if you live in this kind of life, now if you live in this kind of life and enjoy it, chances are you, you have not been born of the Spirit of God. Some of those sins, what were they? Were fornication, adultery, idolatry, drunkenness, revilings, extortion, just to name a few of them. But then he says, but such were some of you. He says to the Corinthians there, to the church of Corinth, such were some of you. There was a time in your past you were guilty of some of these sins here. But such were some of you. But he says, you've been sanctified. You've been washed. You've been cleansed, in other words. You've been sanctified and you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes the difference. But notice he says, but you some... Were, but, but such were some of you in the past. <laughs> we've all got a past, don't we? And we've got a present, and we've got a future. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't live in the past. He lived in the present. Paul could not have been the wonderful apostle that he was if he was always dwelling about the past. He was always 
thinking about the time he, he stood there as a witness when Stephen was stoned to death, when he was on the road to Damascus with letters of authority to bring God's people back, to apprehend them, arrest them, and persecute them, bring them back and put them in jail, put them in prison. If he was always thinking about that, always dwelling on that, he could not have been the great apostle that he was. That's why he said, forgetting those things which are behind, I press toward the mark for the prize that I am calling of God, which is Christ Jesus, my Lord. We got a mark to press toward, and we can't press toward that mark and make any progress unless we forget those things which are behind. The Lord's people need a good forgetter. Oh, the problem I have is trying to remember the things I need to forget and forgetting the things I need to remember. Is that you ever having problems with things like that? Be honest with me now. <laughs> And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespass and sins, for in times past ye walked according to the course of this world. The word course means race. It means race. He said, and this world has a course to it, see. You look in uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 35, you read about, the, uh, about John the Baptist. And you'll find where Paul is speaking about John the Baptist, how he had come and pre preached repentance to the nation of Israel. It said, as John fulfilled his course, he said of them, Who am I? I'm not he that you seek, for he that cometh, I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose his shoes off his feet. As John could finish his course. Somebody said, Well, John was beheaded, was he not? He was, but not before he finished his course. John the Baptist was a full brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He presented Jesus Christ to the nation of Israel as the Lamb of God, John 1:29. Behold the Lamb of God, which take away the sin of the world. He says he came to make ready a people prepared of the Lord. The Lord had prepared this people for centuries. He prepared them because he chose them and he created them and he blessed them and he redeemed them and he delivered them. And he gave them Moses' law, gave them ceremonial law, gave them moral law, gave them a, a civil law. He had prepared them in types and shadows and prophecies. For 400 years had elapsed between Malachi, the last writer of the Old Testament, in the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God sent John ahead of time to make ready a people prepared of the Lord. John fulfilled his course. Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul is going to Jerusalem and they've warned him not to go. But he says, I'm bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. I count not my life dear unto myself. He said, I'm ready to go there and fulfill my course and to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul had a course. 2 uh, Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've finished the race. I've fought a good fight. And he says, I've finished my course, and I've run the race. Paul had a course. He had a race to run. But you hath he quickened who were dead in trespass and sin, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. That's what we do not want to walk according to the course of this world anymore, do we? Notice the warnings that God gives us in the Bible concerning this world in which we live. In John chapter 1, verse 10, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, it said, He was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He was in the world of his created world. He made the world. He was in this world. But the world knew him not. They didn't recognize who he was. They didn't appreciate who he was. 
In 1 John 3 and 1, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father bestowed upon us, and we shall be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. The world did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not recognize him, appreciate him, did not applaud him, and they mistreat him at every turn. The Apostle John writes to us in 1 John 2 and 15, he says, Love not the world nor the things of the world. Notice two parts of this. Love not the world, nor the things of the world. So why should you love the world that knew not the Lord Jesus Christ and knows you not either as, as the sons of God? He said, for all this in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He just summed up what's in this world right here. It's the lust of the eyes. It's the pride of life. This is what the world's all about. Love not the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That sums the world up. 1 John 5 and 19, the Apostle John says, For we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. It's a wicked world in which we live. Notice the separation here. This is a good lesson on the subject of the word world. Obviously, when John says, For we are of God, he's not talking about this world that lies in wickedness over here. For we are of God in the whole world. Life in wickedness. Titus 2.9 For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly here in this present world. You know what the world's constantly trying to do to you and to me? It's constantly trying to influence my mind and my thinking. It's constantly trying to get me to conform to the world. Remember, I'm in the world. I can't get out of this world until I take my dying breath. That's when I get out of this mess. So as long as we're in this world, i got to strive hard not to be of the world. But the world is constantly trying to influence my mind, influence my thinking, influence my thoughts, influence my feelings. It wants to persuade me to live a life contrary to discipleship. The world does not want me to be a disciple of the Savior. The world is just totally, constantly, 180 degrees different from the type of life that Jesus would have us to live. That's what the world is. That's why the world is your enemy. you got three enemies. They're all listed right here. This is what got me interested in these passages. You walked according to the course of this world. The world is your enemy. It's not your friend. The world knew him not. The world knows you not. All that's in the world, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. This world is not an easy place to live in. It's a daily challenge, is it not? So we go to Romans 12, 1. And Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. He said, don't be conformed to the world you're living in. Don't be like, and by nature, we like, to, we like to conform, don't we? We don't want to be different. We don't want to be the one black sheep out there and the whole flock of white sheep, do we? <laughs> we don't want to be the black sheep. We don't want to be different. And, and peer pressure is tremendous. I don't care what age you are, peer pressure is tremendous. You may think it's just for the young folks, but it's not. You want to be liked. You want to be involved. You want to be accepted. So it's real easy then to start being conformed to this world. It's real easy to start compromising your values. 
And that's what the world wants you to do. It wants you to compromise your values, values you've been taught, hopefully by good and godly parents and by the gospel preacher and the word of God. And it wants you to compromise, wants you to compromise. That's one of Satan's greatest tools is to compromise. Oh, a little bit won't hurt. A little bit won't hurt. You know, you cannot possibly be an alcoholic if you never took the first drink. It's impossible to be an alcoholic if you didn't take the first drink. It's impossible to be a drug addict if you never took the first drug. And usually begins, well, just one's not going to hurt you. Maybe one one wouldn't, but one calls for two, and two calls for three, and three calls for four. And the temptation is stronger and stronger and stronger. That's what the world is. That's why he said, be not conformed to this world, love not this world. In the book of James, in chapter 1, he says, But pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the widows and the fathers in their afflictions, and keep yourself unspotted from the world. The world will spot you. I just hate to put on a white shirt and drop ketchup on it. <laughs> you can't hide it. <laughs> I have hit a few spots with my tie, but sooner or later, the tie's got to come off. That's what the world is to you. It just spots you. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's a daily challenge, you see. He says in times past, you walked according to the course of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, For if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them who are lost, whom the God of this world, small g, whom the God of this world hath blinded their minds. See, Satan don't have to worry about blinding the mind of the unregenerate to the wicked and the evil. Their mind's already blind. But he wants to blind the minds of God's children. He wants to darken your understanding. He wants to pull you away. I mean, this world is like a gigantic magnet with a powerful force to draw you away from discipleship out into this world system in which we live. The world has powerful influence. And Satan and the world work hand in hand together. Hand in hand together. Now, he says you walked according to the this course of this world. According, the word according means in harmony with. You walk according in harmony with the course of this world. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. That's the uh, prince. Uh, he, he's Satan. That word prince is used uh, uh, in the scripture on four different occasions. Here's the first one right here. Or it's just one of the four. When I look in the book of John 12 and 31, the Lord Jesus Christ said, now is the judgment of this world. Now I want you to notice how many times the word world and the devil are used in the same breath, so to speak. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. I want you to notice in each one of these references what happens to the devil. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. This world has a prince and that prince is Satan. Now is this prince cast out. And he said, but I, if I be lifted up from the, from the earth, if I be lifted up, he says, I'll draw all men unto me. He's talking about his resurrection here. Drawing all men means all whom he represented. So Satan is cast out. But then we come over to the Gospel of John chapter 14 which is the Lord Jesus Christ's farewell message to his disciples. He says in verse 30, he says, For Satan cometh, or the devil cometh, but he, have, he findeth nothing in me. 
That means Satan could never get a foothold in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never could. He could never get anything on the Lord Jesus Christ. He tried to influence the Pharisees constantly to do this. Remember when Christ performed some miracles and the Pharisees come and said, well, you cast the devil out of this man by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And the Lord showed how, uh, you know, how ridiculous this was. He says, every house divided against itself cannot stand. If I cast out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of devils, then how can his kingdom stand? The very idea that the devil would cast out devils himself. Well, that was Satan. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us in John chapter 8, in verse 44, he says he was a murderer from the beginning, and he was a liar and the father of it. And you find that the very first time we come across him in the book of Genesis, when he's in the Garden of Eden, he comes to Eve, and in conversation with Eve, he tells Eve, uh, when Eve tells him that God has said, the day we eat of this tree, we shall surely die, Satan says, thou shalt surely not die. Every word in that statement is true except the middle word, which is not. And that changes the whole thing, correct? And that's how Satan has been deceiving God's people down through the ages. Now notice here when he says, uh, according to the prince of the power there, the spirit is now working the children of disobedience. Satan wants you to be disobedient to his word. He wants you to be disobedient to the Savior. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden. He got Adam and transgressed God's law and disobeyed God's law. And sin came in the world and death came by sin. And death passed upon all men. I'm trying to identify to you this morning somebody that's very dangerous in your life. It's the devil. The devil is a very dangerous, dangerous thing in your life, in my life. He's everywhere. Now, he's not omnipresent like God. But he's got agents all around this earth. I think that's why he's called the prince of the power of the air. Because, you know, air doesn't have a, you can't box air in, can you? I mean, there's air in here, there's air out there. You can build four walls, you can't keep air out. And you can't keep Satan from his influence in this world. He's all around. He influences the, the leaders of the, of the world, the political leaders, the kings, the presidents, the, uh, everybody. And that... Well, I won't get into all that. I won't sidetrack here on that. But he says, he, hath no, he found, has found nothing in me. He can never get a foothold in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the way through the life of Christ, you find where Satan was on the prowl. When he was uh, less than uh, two years old, we find where Herod, influenced by Satan, had all the children, all the children in Bethlehem from two years old and under, slain. When the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized, the very thing that happened immediately after his baptism, what was it? Thus, he was led the Spirit into a mountain, the mountain of temptation, where there is a confrontation with the devil. I tell you, when the Lord blesses, when the Lord is blessing you individually, when the Lord is blessing uh, your family, when the Lord is blessing us collectively as a household of faith, brethren, I tell you, you've got to be on your guard. You've got to watch out because Satan's right there to pull the rug right out from your feet. This happened immediately after the baptism of Jesus. When the voice rang out, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased, when the Spirit of God descended, the body form in shape of a dove. What happens next? He's led to the mountain of temptation where he's tempted three times of the devil. But each and every time, the Lord defeated him by the written word of God, by quotations from the book of Deuteronomy. But I'm going to take a look at chapter 13 just for a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ is with his disciples, the 12 of them at this time. He says, uh, I speak this not unto you all, because I know whom I have chosen. 
and he shall betray me. And when he made that statement, you're going to find where the apostle Peter, who usually had no trouble speaking up, had trouble this time. He's sitting next to John. John sits next to Jesus, and John is leaning on Jesus' breast. Peter says to John, ask him who it is. <laughs> ask him who it is. John asks him, and Jesus says, him to whom I give a sop to. Him do I dip in the sop and give to him. That's who it is. And I'm persuaded he said this in such a low volume of voice that the others didn't hear it. Because if you keep reading, they didn't understand. When Judas left there, they thought he was going, he was a treasure. He had the bag with the money in it. They thought he was going to do something for the poor. They didn't hear what he told John. And the Bible says when he gave a sop unto Judas's carrot, it says, and Satan entered into him. That's a powerful statement. Satan entered into him. And Judas became the greatest betrayer this world has ever known. Betrayal is nothing new. Remember the time in Judges chapter 16 of a woman with the name of Delilah? And she had a husband with the name of Samson? And the Philistines was bribing her to try to find out where his great strength was? This is his wife now. And he never does, he doesn't tell her how she tries and tries and tries. And then finally, because his soul was vexed, she wore him down. She just wore him down. That's what it means. She just wore him down. He got tired of hearing it. So finally, he told her that he was a Nazarite. And she called for the Philistines. And when he lay with his head in her lap asleep, she called for them, and they, a man came and cut his hair. And he violated being a Nazarite, and he lost his power, and he lost his strength. An act of betrayal. I can give you several other examples from the Word of God of some Benedict Arnolds in the Word. But the greatest betrayer of all time is Judas Iscariot. You think you have problems with the devil? The Lord had problems with him from the time he was born in this world to the time he was crucified. You see, the very thing that Satan was involved in when he moved upon the wickedness of those men to cry out, when the Lord said, you can have Barabbas released, you can have Jesus released. And they said, release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. That was Satan involved, the wicked one. That's why Acts 2.33 says, for him being delivered from the determinate counsel of foreknowledge of God, you have taken by wicked hands, have crucified and slain. They slew him with wicked hands because the wicked one was involved in all that. But here's the irony of it. The very thing Satan accomplished, he thought, in, in having Christ crucified is what dealt him the death blow. <laughs> Jesus came into this world to die, and he died voluntarily. He laid his life down, and three days later he would take it again. Satan uh, is not as smart as he thinks he is. Even when Job, remember in the case of Job, he said, the only reason Job serves you so faithfully, so dedicatedly, uh, and so committed to serving you is because you have uh, put a hedge around him. You blessed him so mightily. That's why he serves you. But God knew Job far better than the devil did. Not as smart as he thinks he is. And he moved behind the scenes to have Christ crucified. But in the end, it was the crucifixion death of the Lord Jesus Christ that slew the devil. I'm telling you, you've got three enemies in this world, and you cannot get away from all three of them 
until you leave this world, but some things you can do to defend yourself. He's in times past, you walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And then notice the next verse. Among whom we also had our conversation in times past. Again, times past. The lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. By nature, we are the children of wrath. By nature, we're no different than the wicked. We're no different than the non-elect. We, by nature, are children of wrath. And Satan wants us to be children of disobedience. He wants us to disobey God. You got the devil, you got the world, and you got the flesh. But let me give you a few things I hope will encourage you in my, as we begin to kind of wrap this up toward an end. In Galatians 1.4, Paul says, The Lord Jesus Christ hath delivered us from this present evil world. Notice how he describes the world. It's present, it's evil, but we've been delivered from it. Jesus has delivered us from this present evil world. He concludes his farewell message in John 16, to his disciples. He says, the words I speak unto you are words of peace. He says, the words I speak unto you are words that you might have peace. He says, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Christ overcame the world. He conquered the world, he defeated the world, and he delivered us from this present evil world. Hebrews 2, 14, for as the children of protectors of flesh and blood, he likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him, had the power of death, that is the devil. The devil had the power of death, but he was destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ by death. Again, in his death, he conquered the devil himself who had the power of death. He's conquered. And I'll there's a lot of reasons to read Revelation 20 and 10. I'm going to give you one verse that's worth reading to read the book for if you didn't have any other reason. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, he says, He saw the devil cast in the lake of fire where the false prophets, false prophet and the beast were. Here's the everlasting fire. Where's the devil going to be? In that everlasting fire. The devil, there were the false prophet and the beast cast into the lake of fire that you've been delivered from by the blood of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. These are three conquered enemies in your life. The devil, the world, and the flesh. That's your human nature, your carnal human nature that is not your friend. It is your enemy, and unfortunately, you have to bring it with you everywhere you go. Oh, if I could have just took him out of my life when I left the house this morning. If I had some cellar, some dungeon with a padlock on it, that's where I'd put him for good. If I could get the devil by the throat and throw him in there, I'd do the same thing, my friends. But I'm telling you, the devil's a good churchgoer. He's one of the most faithful churchgoers I've ever known. The devil likes to come to church. He likes to sit on the pew with you. He likes to come in the pulpit with the gospel preacher, try to trip him up. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you something. We need to do what David did. When, there in John chapter 13, when the Lord Jesus Christ said, I know who the betrayer is. He says, my old familiar friend, he's, he's, uh, he's fulfilling here Psalms 49, 7, where he says, my old familiar friend that I gave bread to, he says, he's lifted up his heel against me. Now he fulfilled that scripture. What that has reference to is David's counsel, the name of Theophil. Go back and read 2 Samuel chapter 15. You'll find where Theophel was David's counselor. 
But his son Absalom was trying to take the kingdom from David, and he got Theophel to leave David and come over here to his camp. You know what David did? David prayed to God that he would defeat the council of the Theophel. And when the Theophel gave counsel unto Absalom, Absalom didn't take it. And Absalom wound up being defeated. You know what happened? God answered David's prayer and defeated the council of Theophel. You know what the Theophel wound up doing? He wound up hanging himself. You know what Judas Iscariot wound up doing? He hung himself. That's exactly what the psalmist is talking about in Psalms 49, fulfilling the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, Satan is a conquered foe, but his final, <laughs> the ultimate destruction, the ultimate punishment, the ultimate, um, you might say, end of the devil has not yet happened, but it's going to happen just as sure as your body's coming out of the grave in the resurrection. And this world which we live in here, it just passes away. You know, I think I mentioned this several weeks back, but I got on this, uh, Karen, uh, as a result of something she said to me. When sometimes somebody departs and somebody dies, we put on the prayer list, so-and-so passed away. She said, I don't like the word passed away or the word away. I think we just use the word pass. I said, all right, that's what we'll do. So I looked into it. You know what passes away? Something that no longer exists. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall be forever. There's coming a day when the sun, the moon, the stars will have no further use. They'll pass away. They'll no longer be in existence. See that? Over here in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, For the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. And he says, The sun shall melt with fervent heat, and the elements shall pass away. That means it no longer exists. They no longer exist. I'm telling you, when you take your last breath, you don't pass away, you just pass. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth in him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. You don't see the word away there, do you? Pass from death to life. When something passes away, it no longer has an existence. I'm telling you, you got an existence. When you draw your last breath, you know what the best word to use is in closing? It's the word depart. The word depart means to unloose. It means to untie. It means to make free. Paul said the time of my departure is at hand. John 13, the Lord Jesus Christ has said, now when the feast of the Passover had come, when Jesus knew the time that he should depart out of this world to be with the Father had come, he loved his own which were in the world. He loved them to the end. I'm looking forward to a departure. When I go to the airport, there's a sign that says departures and arrivals, right? So when I get on that plane to depart, I fully expect to get to this side. I fully expect to reach my destination. And I'm telling you, when I draw my last breath and depart this world, I fully expect to reach my destination. And my destination is not of this world. My destination is a place called heaven, paradise, if you please, where all the family of God go to when they leave this world right here. You still got to contend with the world, with the devil, and your flesh, your human nature, as long as you live. But I do want you to know that Jesus Christ has conquered all three and they will not prevent you from being with the Lord in glory some sweet day based upon the victorious work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.